May 2004. Colorado local L. Kite, 53, advertises his spare room for rent. A strange man takes the room and before long, L. Kite is found tortured to death in his basement. The new roommate is the suspected killer of L. Kite and could be on the run internationally. The suspected killer is male, Caucasian, in his 40s or 50s, 5 foot 10, 170 to 180 pounds, and has black or brown hair. A number of witnesses reported that he walked with a limp and used a cane, while others detected a Romanian accent. Sources for this episode include The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes, The Denver Channel, Unresolved.me, TheFBI.gov, and The Denver Post. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 57 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or been murdered abroad, or maybe their killer is abroad. So, I just want to open up quickly by saying welcome to new patron Kiana. I think it's Kiana, could be Kiana. Thank you so much for coming on board. Um, and yeah, if you guys want to become patrons, just go to patreon.com slash unknown passage podcast um, and you get to choose a location from a, for an upcoming episode and then I'll choose a case from that location. Some of you have challenged me so much <laughs> lately. Um, so I'm working hard at them, but this week is a bit of a gear shift. So this is not a Patreon request because all of my current upcoming Patreon requests, I think, are in Europe. And I don't like to do the same continent twice in a row. So I've decided to cover another piece of shit who hopefully will be caught one of these days. Um, someone who could be an international fugitive. Now, this case, the murder of Al Kite, I watched, I first heard about it last year. So Paul Holes, who many of you would know his podcast with Billy Jensen, or you'd know that he helped solve the Golden State Killer case, which was idle for many decades. He has a really good TV show that I really enjoy, and I don't watch a lot of true crime shows anymore. And he has one called The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes. And in November of last year, I think on the second episode of the first season, he covered the case of um, Oki L. Kite. And it takes a lot for me to really freak out or be wigged out. And Al's case did that for me. And just re-looking into it, I really have been on and off for probably the last year. Um, it fascinates me. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of it. It scared the living piss out of me to the point where I got up late at night after watching it and made sure the doors were locked. And that's really not like me. The whole thing is just creepy and just, ugh, I can't even explain it. But I will explain it when I get into this episode. Um, so just to kind of say the case, I can thank Paul Holes for bringing to my attention but I do want to say that unresolved.me online is an amazing resource for research into this case. They had so much more information than, you know, a 45-minute show can include, um, both about L, his murder, and a lot of their own theories. So I'll put that on the website page for this, but they basically encompass all of the research that's out there on this one 
you know, page for Elle's case. Um, this is a big case. I won't be focusing too much on the location in Colorado. So I guess you're wondering how I fit this in when he's an American who was killed in America. Um, the answer is really it's because I believe he's the fugitive who killed him um, could be overseas. That's how it works for these fugitive cases I do. I had had Al on my list for quite a long time. And then just the other day, Mark, who has been on a previous episode of Unknown Passage with me, who lives next door to me, he was talking about a friend of his who got a nutty um, flatmate move in with him and they've only just been able to have him evicted. And I was trying to choose a location for an upcoming case or whether or not to do a fugitive or whatever. And I instantly thought, oh my God, I'm going to do the case of Al Kite because this is like single white female times a million. This is a big case. It has a lot of information, a lot of theories, a lot of tangents. It can go off on. So I'm going to probably do this in two parts. I'm going to do Al, his murder and the initial investigation for the first episode. And then really the second episode will be theories and further investigation where people have found related cases, things like that. The case is ongoing and thanks to Paul Holes, it has had a bit of life breathed into it. And we do have way more information from them sending off the DNA in this case to be looked at, forensic genealogy, and we do know where this person's DNA kind of originates from in the world. Um, and I think that's truly amazing. So I will go into what Paul Holes and his team have kind of been able to dig up in the last year on the case of Al Kite, but bear in mind this happened in 2004 and I think really Paul Holes and his team on the TV show, as much as I believe a lot of those shows are really kind of grotesque, the way that they present things. I love Paul Holes. I find him incredibly respectful of people. He's a true cop through and through, a good one, not the ones that we're seeing kind of across the world at the moment. Um, and I think that this has kicked things into gear where this person hopefully will be caught. And so I wanted to throw my hat into the ring and um, tell the story of Al Kite and his murder. So let's start things off by talking a little bit about the man in question who really, Al Kite is lost in a lot of this because obviously his killer has still not been caught and there's so much about the killer that Al really gets lost in it and he really endured so much in, you know, the lead up to his death. Um, I just wanted to kind of start by talking about him. So Al Kite, he was actually born Oki Albert Kite Jr. Um, and he was born on May 7th, 1951 in North Carolina. Shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, um, the Crack House Chronicles, Dale and Donnie there. He was born in Nash County, North Carolina. Oki, I actually know a girl who is married to a guy called Oki, so it's not totally weird. There's also a place in Australia called Oki that always comes up on the show Neighbours. But Oki, he was 53 when he died, um, but he went by the name L, so I'll refer to him as L throughout this. He did this because his dad was Oki Albert Kite Senior and he really wanted to kind of dis differentiate himself and um, be his own person, so he started going by his middle name's Albert, so he started going by L, um, and that's kind of the name that stuck. His parents were Oki Albert Kite Sr. Um, and his mother was Edith Davis Kite. And his mother died when he was 18. Um, if Oki was alive today, he would be about 69 years old, just. He was 53 when he died. Now, Al 
was warm and friendly and really from his photos, um, as with many people, you can just tell what a lovely guy he was. I bet he was a very kind and gentle man. And that's all I've got in terms of what his friends and family have said about him. He was warm and friendly to those around him, always helpful. He was responsible, reliable. You could always count on him. He had a sister called Barbara. Um, she lives in Virginia and did at the time of his death. Um, I believe they were very close growing up. Barbara later described her brother Al as, quote, very compassionate, very trusting, which may have led to his death. He had a goodness about him, unquote. So when he started going to college, as Americans call it, university as we call it, um, Al decided to stick around in North Carolina. He only went to a college about an hour south of where he lived um, in Wilson, North Carolina. This is called Atlantic Christian College and he studied business administration. After leaving university um, in 1971, he entered the corporate world, what was going to be a very successful career. Um, he started working for a company called Stone and Webster. They were a large engineering services company. And this company he would stay with for over 31 years. And he was one of their longest, you know, and most trusted um, employees. This job took him all over the world. Um, he worked for them in Virginia first before climbing the corporate ranks. Um, and in 1976, when he was 26 years old, Al married his high school sweetheart. Her name was Gail. Gail and Al did not have children. Um, I don't know why. It's not really any of my business. But she had a daughter, Julie, um, from a previous marriage. And Al became her stepdad. And he was a beloved stepdad even after he and Gail divorced in 1988 after 17 years of marriage. Al stayed incredibly close with Julie, his stepdaughter. And I believe her mother had good things to say about Al as well. His job took him to Massachusetts, New York, Wyoming, Tennessee, Texas, Nevada for short stints, you know, or um, brief trips or for a little bit longer. Um, and one of the most interesting things about Al is that with this job that he was at for 31 years, he actually spent time in Algeria, which is in northern Africa. Um, he spent a little bit of time, I believe probably a few months, working on a project um, in Algeria, which is very interesting. So after he and Gail divorced in 1988, after 17 years of marriage, um, Al did what not many men do, and he stayed single uh, for quite a long time. There's really nothing that's said about Al, even if he dated people, it probably wasn't for a long period of time, because really, between 1988 and 2004, when he died, we only really hear about one one relationship that he was in when he unfortunately was murdered. Um, I don't really have anything to say about that, but I always notice that men kind of rebound really quickly. So he probably really just wanted to enjoy and get back on his feet. Um, a lot of people kind of lose themselves after that amount of time in a marriage and don't really know who they are. And I kind of respect Al for staying single and enjoying his life and kind of branching out and trying to put himself out there. So in 1998, I guess what would be one of the first sliding door events that probably would have changed his destiny um, for Al. He was offered a job in Denver, Colorado. That is the capital of Colorado. I've written a lot about Colorado as a travel writer, but I'm a fraud and I have not been there. But I have a friend who, well, 
he goes to Colorado about three times a year to visit his friend and he wants to move to Colorado. It's a very kind of chill, outdoorsy place, very 420 friendly in Denver. Um, and Al took this job in Denver that he was offered because he loved the outdoor lifestyle. And obviously Colorado is home to the Rocky Mountains. Um, he was living when he died not far from, you know, at the foothills of the Rockies. And he loved the outdoor lifestyle and he thought it would really suit him. So he eagerly accepted this job. Now, Al didn't move to Denver. He moved to Aurora, which I believe is only about 25, it's either kilometers or miles. I think it's kilometers from um, downtown Denver. So it's its own city in its own right. Um, he moved to Aurora, which is, you know, as I said, on the outskirts of Denver. Um, now, Aurora is most famous for the Aurora, Colorado shooting, um, James Holmes, who shot up the, the cinema. Um, so I always just picture him when I think of Colorado, sadly, and his bright mental hairdo. Um, so the house that Al ended up buying in Aurora, um, it was on a street called South Helena Street. Um, and he actually bought it. He didn't rent it. It was really close to what you guys call in America the interstate, which I guess we call a highway, um, to get to work. And it was a really lovely place. It's a two-story townhouse with a basement, which will come into play, unfortunately. Um, very spacious. And Al regularly joked that um, he had way too much room there that he needed as a bachelor. So... Al had this two-story townhouse um, in Aurora, Colorado, and the lower basement level, which I've noticed through my work, um, a part of my job is kind of putting together hotel lists and Airbnb lists and things like that. I've noticed that a lot of American homes, they have basements. We don't in Australia. They have a lot of attics. We don't. But I've noticed how many people have basements that they turn into kind of guest houses or guest suites or their own independent apartments, which is really cool. And Elle had that. Um, it was all ready. You know, it wasn't a construction site, anything like that. Um, it was pretty much self-contained. So Elle decided at one stage in the early 2000s to bring someone in to help pay the rent. And this was because the company that he had worked for for 31 years, they had downsized. And as happens, along with everyone else, Al had been made redundant and lost his job. So he bought in someone who was a really good tenant. They were there for, I believe, about a year um, before his murder, which another thing, if they hadn't have moved out, you know, what happened to Al would not have happened. So he bought someone in, but then very soon after that, he found another job anyway. Um, this was with a company called Carter Douglas. They're based in Denver, the capital, not very far from Aurora. Um, and they are an engineering consulting firm. So basically I had to look up because I'm not very hip with what a consultant is. I always hear that thrown around, but I don't really understand. So engineering consulting basically is when a company doesn't have the means to plan, you know, a new civil engineering or, you know, construction or something, and they bring in a consultant to oversee it. I'm not really going to get too much into that because I'm really not good with that kind of thing. But Al was, was really respected at his job. He was kind of in a management position. Um, a lot of people think that his job had something to do with his ultimate demise. I am not entirely sure. I personally don't really think so, but um, it's something to keep in mind. So this person was still living in the basement. And during this time, Al 
you know, got outside as much as he could to enjoy his life in, in Colorado. He played golf, he hiked, um, he excelled at his work. His employees, you know, the people under him, especially as well as his bosses, found him to always be there to help. Um, they said he was kind of like a beacon of help amongst um, the company and he was responsible. And I think he was just a really kind, gentle guy who was always there for the people that he worked with to help them with anything. He loved golf. He loved hiking. Um, and I think he loved fishing. So he was really just kind of enjoying his new life in Colorado. And at this point, he had been single for quite a long time. So that brings us to 2004, the year that he died. He died in the May. I probably shouldn't say he died. He was murdered. Saying he died sounds like he died of cancer or something. He was brutally murdered. So I think a couple of months before he died, he threw, I think, a work, I saw it on one source, it was like a work function. Elle met a really lovely woman called Linda. And I say she's lovely because she's interviewed on Paul Holzer's show. And you can tell that 16 years on, his murder is still hugely affecting her. And when you hear the details of it, you can understand why. Linda told the Denver News in 2019, quote, he was a very, very nice guy and he would give the world to anybody if they asked for it, unquote. So they'd been going out for a couple of months. They were taking it kind of slow and they were at that stage making it more serious, their relationship. So that brings us to the month in question, May 2004. Unfortunately, Al's tenant that he had in his basement, who was a good tenant who lived there for about a year with no issues, they decided to move out for whatever reason. And Al still wanted to have that regular income coming in from subletting. So he started advertising for a new one. Now, a number of sources say he put ads in local universities, which will come into play later. From what I can find in the actual documentation, he only put ads in local papers. So keep that in mind. This was 2004. Maybe if it was 2020, he would have put it on, you know, Gumtree or Craigslist or something, but people were still putting ads in local papers. So he put it in local papers around the local area, um, Aurora you know, Denver, um, for someone to take over this spot. May 19th, 2004. And we know that this is the date that this man in question checked out the house for the first time um, because a neighbour saw them. A man responded to Al's advertisement. Um, he sounded incredibly eager for the apartment. He wanted to move in straight away. Luckily, Al met him a couple of times. Um, this was just a few days before he died that he first contacted him and the information that Al passed on to particularly Linda, his girlfriend, about this man, she did not meet him, um, I think is kind of key to maybe solving this. This man was so eager to rent out the basement apartment that he even offered Al the first month's rent and a security deposit to speed it along, which I found really interesting because in Australia, that is what you pay to get any apartment. But maybe some people are more chill when they're subletting. They don't take a security deposit or something like that. Now, this man who contacted Al, he called himself Robert Cooper. Linda still to this day vividly remembers Al discussing this Robert. And it would obviously stick in your mind because, you know, a few days later, Al would be viciously murdered by this man, Robert Cooper. The way that 
Al had described him to Linda kind of in passing. He'd said, this guy's looking at the place. Um, he's going to come over and check it out or he's been over before to check it out. Um, I think he went twice. I'll get into that in a minute. So the way he was described, he is in his 40s. He has dark wavy hair. Um, she said she thought he was around five foot eight from what she heard, weighed about 180 pounds. And one of the most key things to this is that he walked with a limp and used a cane. Now, this is how he appeared to Al Kite. As we get into it, you'll realize that this man is the limp and the cane is not how he appeared to a number of other people. So he came over to check it out. And at this point, Linda also just dropped by at the same time. And Al answered the door and he said to Linda, quote, oh, there's someone looking at the place downstairs. Why don't you come down and meet him, unquote. And this is Linda saying this last year. So she still remembers this so clearly. So basically, Linda, instead of meeting this guy, she said, I've just got to duck into your toilet. And in the time between her going into the toilet and coming out, this guy just exited the house very quickly. She never saw his face. Um, she kind of saw him from the side and the back. He kind of quickly left a couple of sources I've seen say that he had his head down, like he did not want this Linda to see him. So one of the scariest things about all of this is that only Elle saw this guy's face. A number of other people did, which I'll get into shortly. But this guy changed his appearance so much to different people um, that you wonder which one was the right appearance. Linda said about that encounter, quote, he did not meet, he did not want me to see him at all. She said, quote, the guy walked out the door, didn't even look back, no hi, no nothing. He just wouldn't look back and just walked away. I saw the back of him. I saw his side profile and that was it. And Al says, well, he doesn't want to move in, said Linda, unquote. So at that point, he suddenly exited and said he didn't want the place. He'd checked it out and he was leaving. But clearly this is because Linda turned up and he did not want an additional person to see his face. And that's how we get the description because it was from Linda and she really only saw him for a split second. Now, Linda really thought that that was the end of that applicant. But um, later on that day, apparently, he turned back up when Linda wasn't there and gave Elle a deposit saying that he had changed his mind and he indeed wanted the place. She said when she saw him the first time before he bailed and then he waited for her to leave and then later came back, she said he was dressed very well. He was wearing a nice pair of pants and a suit coat. Um, and most people who came across him say the same. Now, a male neighbour who was in the area the day that he checked this out um, on May 19th or May 20th, um, he saw this Robert Cooper and he tried to kind of say hi to him and say, hey, what are you doing? Um, and this guy completely... Robert Cooper completely ignored the neighbour. Um, another female neighbour was walking on a nearby walking trail in the area. She saw the exact same guy um, and she recalled him, quote, seeming to stare through her while walking, unquote. So he was just like, like she wasn't even there. He's like a ghost. I get chills. This case gives me absolute chills. Now, this woman said that this man indeed had a limp and he had a cane. So keep that in mind. Now, about two days after meeting Elle, um, Robert Cooper, as he called himself, and Elle reached a agreement in regards to his tenancy. He was going to pay a security deposit and half of the first month's rent, and then he would move in as soon as he possibly could. 
So Elle is having these negotiations with this guy, um, but, you know, no one else has seen him from Elle's circle, really. On May 22nd, 2004, Linda was going away for a week. This was a planned trip that she had out of state. I'm not sure where she was going. Um, but when she was going, Al took her to the airport. He drove her to the airport. He was acting perfectly normal. When she landed at her destination, which was in America, she called Al. He answered. He was completely normal. He was in a good mood. He had told her that he had fixed a pipe um, in the basement apartment, I believe a couple of sources say with the help of a neighbor who had dropped over to help him. And he had told Linda that his roommate was moving in pretty much ASAP. Could be that day, could be the next day. Um, and he was waiting for him to move in. And when she hung up that phone call, that was the last time Linda would ever talk to her new love, Elle. So that brings us to Monday, May 24th, 2004. And Linda has not talked to Elle since the Saturday, the May 22nd, when he dropped her at the airport. And when she landed, she called him, everything was all fine. So what's happening is between her hanging up probably the evening of May 22nd, um, and then almost like the afternoon of May 24th, so Saturday through to Monday. So on the Monday, May 24th, 2004, the very reliable and responsible Al Kite did not come to work, which was incredibly out of the ordinary. He did not call in, he did not show up. After a number of hours, his employer, who knew how reliable he was and really felt that something was up, he called Al's emergency contact, which he had listed on all his documentation as his sister, Barbara. Unfortunately, Barbara lived in Virginia, which is a number of states away, um, and she regularly spoke to her brother, Al, but she hadn't heard from him, I think, for a few days. So she decided to do what is good. She called the Aurora um, Police Department and she basically said, can you drop in for a welfare check? A welfare check is just if you're concerned about someone, police can go around, knock on the door. If they're fine, that's fine. And they just haven't wanted to be in touch with someone. But I mean, everyone's feeling that something's up. So the police arrive at Al's townhouse um, and they knock repeatedly on the door and there's no answer and the house is silent. Now, they were worried about Al's welfare. They thought he might have had a fall or some sort of medical situation and every source says that they entered the home. I don't know how they entered the home. I don't believe they kicked the door in. I'm just putting this together that I can't find the answer. Um, I don't think it really matters, but he could have had a spare key hidden somewhere that someone knew about and that's how they got in. I'm not entirely sure or they jimmied a lock or something like that. Um, so they looked around the house. Everything was orderly, but then they decided to head down the stairs to the lower level basement, which was now Robert Cooper's self-contained apartment. Detective Thomas Sobieski, who has worked on this case since that day, he arrived on the scene. He was one of the ones who walked into the house and he walked into what he describes as, quote, the worst crime scene he'd ever seen, unquote. And he still to this day is appealing for information and this case is incredibly important to him. When they walked down the stairs into the basement apartment, they found El Kite face down on the carpet. There was blood spatter along the wall, around his body on the floor, and very quickly they realised that this was quite a violent crime scene because of the amount of blood and where it was sprayed all over the room. 
Investigators found quite a large wound on the back of Al's head. Um, they believed that what had happened to him, he had been hit from behind, um, most likely when he was walking down the basement steps. Now, one of the most disturbing things about Al's body as it was found and the DNA of murder with Paul Holes has these photos. I'll try to post them on Instagram. This is the part that really disturbed me um, and made me feel sick. Al had essentially been hogtied with a cord. Um, his hands and his feet were bound behind his back and then they were kind of tied together in a ligature. The person who had killed Al had tortured Al after hog-tying him. They had hit him on the back of the head. He had fallen down the stairs. They had then mercilessly tortured him for hours after hog-tying him. He was obviously kind of delirious and trying to get his his grounding, probably standing up, not knowing what happened, and this person hog-tied them, which is a very distinct way to tie someone. Um, and then they proceeded to torture Al. Tom Sobieski said, quote, his hands were elaborately tied to his ankles and he's on his face and he was feet whipped, which is very painful. A lot of bruising on his feet. The suspect had taken, we assume, some of the kitchen knives and inserted them above Elle's eyeballs and into his eardrums, unquote. And Paul Holes you know, interviews these people on his show and I suggest watching it. Um, they pretty much show on a, on their body like where he was stabbed. He was he was stabbed pretty much into his eyes um, by this person. Um, they had shoved knives into his eardrums, which is just horrible. Um, and one of the most distinct things that could come into play in, in identifying this person was what he called feet whipping, Tom Sobieski. Now, I will get into this in part episode two. Um, in certain countries in the world, and this is a very kind of key, I think, part of this case, um, tying someone up and hitting their feet with a baton or a whip or something like that, it is one of the most painful things you can go through. And in a number of countries, this is called flacker. This could identify the person who did this and where they're from. So keep that in mind for episode two. After probably they don't even know. Um, it could have been, you know, up to a day, could have been a few hours. Um, Al was ultimately murdered by this person. His death was 22 stab wounds um, across his body. And basically he had, they believe from, you know, the blood on the scene and the scene and how long he'd been dead for that the last thing he had done basically before being attacked was talk to Linda on the phone. And just bear in mind that he said he was waiting for his new flatmate to arrive. The state of the crime scene, um, as I said, was pretty evident. The police very quickly realised that Al was attacked walking down the stairs. Um, and the reason that they believed this was because when they spoke to Linda, um, and I'll get into all the evidence that people give about this man and different things in a little bit, Elle had basically said that when the tenant, Robert Cooper, had turned up that day when they suddenly left when Linda arrived, they had noticed a recliner um, in Elle's living room 
for some reason, this person kind of took interest in it. We don't really know how because Al didn't really kind of specify. We wish he was alive. So we had these answers. Um, and Al basically was such a kind guy that he was like, hey, I'll move it down into your basement apartment. You can have it. Um, he was helping someone and they attacked him. And the police believe that he was walking um, that recliner down the stairs and carrying it when he was attacked, which is so brutal. And I say this because on Sunday... I fell down my flight of stairs, um, about seven stairs. There's two. It comes to a landing and then another one in our in our block. Um, it's never happened in six years of living here. And I was carrying, I, when I was researching this, I thought about um, Elle because I was carrying an entertainment unit basically out the front of our flat. Mark and I, we have a sinkhole <laughs> nature strip where you can just put furniture and it just disappears. People come and collect it. And I had this entertainment unit. I didn't want him trying to get rid of stuff. We were carrying the entertainment unit down the stairs. He was below me and I was kind of above um, carrying it. And I fell carrying the entertainment unit. Um, and my knee is unbelievably sore and black. Um, and I couldn't get up for probably 15 minutes after I fell. Mark had to bring me an ice pack. I, my leg just wouldn't work. And when I was researching this, you know, Elle's almost twice my age and it would, it, it's just blindsiding someone. It's, it's truly unbelievable. Now, when they went up into the rest of the house to look over this house, see if there was any evidence, they found um, a sink full of evidence that the person had clearly tried to get rid of evidence on it, such as DNA or fingerprints with bleach. So this person had killed Al. Um, they had gone upstairs. They had plugged the sink. In the sink, they put pretty much every kitchen knife between 6 and 12. They believe that they went up when they were killing Al, got all of these and tortured him with all the different size knives from a kitchen block. Um, he had also, this person, put a drinking glass, a pen, a dishwasher scrubber, um, Elle's car keys, and he had filled the sink with Clorox bleach, which is an American brand. But he had essentially done this, what Bob Ruff would call a forensic countermeasure, and decided to remove all evidence with bleach. And seemingly it worked because they only have a little bit of evidence um, from this man left behind. But I want to kind of stop for a second and say the things that were in that sink that they were trying to remove evidence of indicates that this was someone who kind of spent time in this place. Um, it was a drinking glass. Someone was there drinking from this glass, um, you know, a pen maybe a pen that he had signed the rental application with, Elle's car keys, which I'll get into in a bit, why they would have put Elle's car keys in there, a dishwasher scrubber. These are all things that this new tenant would have maybe touched. And also that new tenant, Robert Cooper, never turned up again. Um, so we know it's him. The police started going through the garbage bin in Elle's kitchen and they found something that they thought at the time would be a huge kind of breakthrough in the case, but it ended up not being. It was the discarded rental application for Robert Cooper. Now, I personally believe that this was put there by Robert Cooper. He knew he was leaving it there. I think this whole case by this guy is a case of cat and mouse. And in the second episode, I'll get into why he's just taunting people. Um, so this application, like with most rental applications, you fill in all your details, um, you know, kind of your income, all of that stuff. And he, this person had put 
their name, address or previous mailing address, social security number, which is, you know, something in America, their phone number, and they had put the name Robert Cooper. Now, I'll get into that shortly. So, most tellingly, the police noticed that Al's car and his phone were not there. His car was gone um, and his phone was gone. The police at this stage believed this to be a robbery and a very well-planned one. But later that day, just a few hours later, Al's blue and grey GMC pickup truck was found. Now, the vehicle was only found a block and a half away from Al's house along just a side street. So the car has been taken and then just parked a block and a half away. But we do have this person on camera and we know that they drove it somewhere further away and then they drove it back. This is one of the many questions I have, why this person didn't park it at Elle's house. I find the whole thing incredibly strange if they were trying to cover their tracks. Now, in the car, they were able to find trace amounts of DNA they presume this is left by the killer because it doesn't match L. And this has been submitted to a forensic database since 2004, but as yet there have been no hits and I'll get in, back into the car in a little bit. So then police started going around, you know, the Aurora area. This got quite a lot of traction as it would. It's such a unique unbelievably barbaric case that you wouldn't expect to happen in a place like Colorado, um, a small place like Aurora. (laughs) Then again, there was the shooting in Aurora, but police started tracking down people and getting tips from people who believed that apartments that they had been advertising, that this Robert Cooper had checked out their apartment. And I firmly believe that every single one of these instances was this man. They also had his name. So you really can't deny that there was a guy getting around this area called Robert Cooper, who just never turned up again to any of these and was a complete weirdo when he was in their homes checking out it. So May 19th was when he checked out Al's place. But before that, um, there was a professor from Colorado who had a property that she was renting out. Now, a man that matched the exact same physical description that Linda had given about the guy who had moved into Al's place with the name Robert Cooper met with her to discuss her property that she was renting out. This man, I just got chills. (laughs) This man did not have a limp like L and Linda had specified. He did not carry a cane like Linda noticed and the neighbours of L noticed. But this man suddenly had a very different accent. He had a Romanian accent. Now, you'd wonder why this woman would know a Romanian accent because I can't pick a Romanian accent. My fake Russian accent, I cover, it covers, you know, Ukraine, all of it. It's the same one. But this woman was very familiar with accents. She worked at a university in an area where she knew a lot about Romania. She was able to tell the police that he absolutely had a Romanian accent and there was no way that he was faking it. Now, also after checking out this woman's property, obviously not finding the perfect victim setup that he hoped for. This man had also approached several other people um, in the days and weeks leading up to him finding Elle's advertisement. Three of these renters where he checked out their their places that they were renting said that the encounters with this man were incredibly different, incredibly weird, 
peculiar, as they put it, um, because every single person who came forward and said Robert Cooper checked out the apartment or the house I have for rent said that the man who turned up had a different characteristic to the description before it. The Romanian accent sticks with people because that woman is dead certain that it was Romanian, but different people that came forward said he had different accents, he had different mannerisms, he had a cane, he didn't have a cane, he had a limp, he didn't have a limp. He was playing the part of a completely different person at each, you know, inspection that he went to. And he was playing a new character, as they put it, for each potential witness it's almost like he's trying to cover his tracks, which seemingly has worked so far. But it's almost like, to me, he knows the people that he's targeting. He's rung these people. He knows their general, their male, female, single, you know, he can hear this stuff on the phone. He's getting information from them. He's going to know if they're the perfect victim or not. And then he's just checking it out. He's going there. He's seeing this you know, I'm not going to get away with it because this is too kind of open, this property. Neighbours are too close by. You know, this woman has a boyfriend, all those kinds of things. And that's the way I see it. Now, one of these potential people, potential renters who was going to rent their property out to him when he checked it out, one of them said that he was certain that this man was in his mid-30s. Another said that he was probably in his early 50s. And that is a huge gap. You can tell, you can tell the difference. So, this is not like jumping the gun or anything like that, but I per- I personally believe that this man was using prosthetics and things like that to dramatically change his appearance. It was the same man. We're dead certain of that. Um, but I've never seen a case like this where it's, it's, it's like they're putting on different Halloween costumes, different disguises. It's unbelievable. Um, most a number of people said that you know he walked perfectly fine and there was no cane or no limp others said that there was the cane and the limp I don't know personally if the cane and the limp which I'll get into in my theories in part two was a prop to make him look more vulnerable like he wouldn't be a threat to someone um I feel like he probably used those for women and for some reason he used that with L. um some people said that he had a very American accent. Um, then there was the Romanian one. Others said that they couldn't kind of place it because he didn't talk a whole lot. He he was a man of few words. Now, one of the potential renters where he checked out their apartment, she was an older woman living alone. She said she was incredibly creeped out by him when he came to like check out the place instead of checking out just, you know, like in an inspection, you look through the rooms randomly. Um, He was checking out the windows very thoroughly, she said. And she said, he said next to nothing, really freaked her out. Um, And she felt really uneasy in her own home with this man. Now, putting together all of these kind of descriptions of this man, um, because in general, the hair and all that is exactly the same. What's changing is his walk, um, his accent, things like that. So they were able to put together a subsequent composite drawing, which was done. And I will put this on Instagram. You can look it up. Um, it scares me. It really scares me. Um, it looks a bit... <laughs> so the movie The Pianist with Adrian Brody, um, he... the the composite looks exactly like the actual guy that that movie is about, um, Waldeck Spielmann. <laughs> and I know that cause I've got his book and it just really freaked me out cause it's very, very similar. And, um, Waldeck Spielmann is Polish and it really just kind of ties in. This guy is very kind of Eastern European looking. Now, 
We're going back to the application form that the police found thrown in Al's garbage bin in his kitchen. Now, they checked out all of the details that were provided on it. So the address that was provided ended up, um, so when he'd filled it out, this Robert Cooper, he said, I have to give my sister's address because I'm between places right now, which is fair enough. So he had put his sister's address. But when the police tracked it down, this was actually the address of a building on the University of Colorado's medical school campus, which is a prime location that comes in to this again and again, the University of Colorado's medical school campus. Now, the social security number that he had provided on his application form, the police looked that up on their system. This belonged to a woman who was not near the area and had absolutely no connection to the case. So he had just used a random person's social security number. The phone number that he provided on the rental application was an active number. Um, it was a burner phone that was pretty much not turned on and, you know, you could just throw it away. Um, you just buy a prepaid phone, fill in your fake details, activate it, and that's what a lot of these killers um, like this use to get away with their crimes. So that came to nothing. The police um, organised a trace of that particular phone um, that the man had put down the number of on his application form. And they also tracked Al's phone because this was currently missing as well from his house. Both of them were found to be in the Denver area and they were moving. When the police traced um, the phones and they were moving in Denver, um, what they found is just another example of this killer kind of playing cat and mouse games with the police. So they found them both separately. Um, they were found in the Five Points area of Denver, which is a very notorious area in Denver um, that where there are a lot of homeless people and transient people and it's quite rough. This killer had disposed of them there. Um, he was clearly aware that these would be picked up by homeless people and used, further kind of complicating the case. So that's what came with the phones. Now, the police ran a search um, for where this burner phone had been purchased from, and they found that it had been purchased in a store near the University of Colorado Medical School. The same place, again, comes up. This person had, you know, um, purchased the phone from there, um, and I'm just going to get into something in a minute. This was the phone when they looked into it that had called all the other rental renters that were advertising their properties. Um, it had made, it had been used on several of the rental applications that I talked about before with other people who found this man very strange. And the person had used the phone to make dozens of calls to people who were renting out their properties, trying to find the right property for him. Now, the police are very kind of locked into the University of Colorado link because not only was the mailing address on his rental application, not only was that the address of the medical school at the University of Colorado, the burner phone was also purchased in a store just off the campus. But hold on to your hats. The People that I talked about earlier who had advertised their properties, not L, he had advertised it in the local newspaper. That's why at the start I, I said, remember that part, he only advertised it in the local newspaper. A number of the people who had unfortunately met this Robert Cooper and he had checked out their properties had advertised their properties on flyers within the University of Colorado. So 
These ones had not been advertised anywhere else. Unlike Elle, they were not in the local paper. They are not in newspapers, newsletters. They were not on the internet. So we know that this person saw these advertised properties advertised, you know, on boards within the University of Colorado. And this person again and again has links to the University of Colorado. So this was a really solid lead, obviously, for the police, but it has been 16 years. And so far, other than what they've found, which I'll get into in episode two in regards to Paul Hole's investigation, they don't even have one suspect for this. Um, but the police are firmly kind of of the assumption that this person had some link to the University of Colorado Medical School, medical campus. Um, but when we get into them tracing, you know, So then the next thing the police did was they ran a check of whether or not Al's bank accounts had been accessed um, and whether or not his credit cards had been used. And they found that, yes, indeed they had. And this was substantially, quote unquote, after his time of death that they had ruled. Now, this brings us back to when they discovered Al's GMC pickup a block and a half away on a separate side street. And I asked you to keep that in mind because why would this person kind of drive back? So basically investigators believed that this person had killed Al. They had got the information from him for his bank account um, they had gone, taken his car, gone to an ATM, took money out and then returned the car to the nearby side street and then somehow left Aurora. Um, why they bought the car back, I do not know. Now, the reason that investigators know that kind of what this person looks like a little bit is that Al's credit card had been used at a nearby ATM. Now, this was a Wells Fargo bank and is really funny to us, but Americans have like drive-through bank ATMs, which is really funny. <laughs> I wish we had that. Now, this ATM luckily had a built-in camera, which was focused on the car that pulled up to take money out. And there's a glance of this killer, which is incredibly chilling when you look at it, and I will put it online. So this person had pulled up, you can see this still of them, this photo. They have a ski mask on, which is so disturbing. They're just driving around wearing a ski mask. Um, they make a withdrawal from the ATM. Now, L had quite a lot more money than what's taken out. This person took out only $1,000, an even number. I don't know if they thought that there was a minimum, um, a maximum that you could take out that day, your daily kind of um, withdrawal amount, or whether or not this was all they wanted. Um, but as Paul Holes talks about on his episode, um, and a lot of sources just don't, this amount that he takes out literally just covers the amount that he had paid in his security deposit and things like that. It's so, it's so strange. It's like he just refunds himself for his security deposit. Now, this guy pulls up, he's wearing gloves, he kind of reaches out of the car to the machine. The shot we have of him is kind of just... He's kind of leaning over. I'll put it up. It's hard to explain. Um, but he's got a very Roman nose. That's one of the things that stands out, a very kind of Eastern European almost nose. He took out an even $1,000, as I said. L had a huge amount more than that in his bank account. And the killer 
could have just kept taking out money until someone found him. He had the whole weekend to do it. Um, Al had been dead for a couple of days at that point, but he only took that thousand, which as I said, is only the amount that kind of with, um, refunded him like for his bond security deposit and rent. So this guy clearly just, it wasn't about robbery because he would have taken out way more money than that. Um, but yeah, um, and then after that visit to the ATM, he drove Al's car back. He parked it kind of a block and a half away on this side street. He deliberately left the ATM receipt on the car seat next to him. It was placed so clearly that they thought it could only have been deliberate. The police then believe that he had taken the keys, which were later found in the sink with bleach on them, back to the home. Um, and he had covered everything in bleach, including the knives used, and then left. And luckily for him, he had some understanding of this because there was no evidence found in the things in the sink. He had destroyed it. The only evidence and DNA that was found was, you know, on the car, the steering wheel that he was driving around holding. And just like that, that guy was gone. So basically to recap, Al Kite rented his, you know, spare guest house apartment, self-contained apartment under his house. Um, he advertised it in local newspapers, not anywhere else, not on the internet, not on campuses, not in public. This person who had checked out many apartments and clearly just didn't get the setup that he wanted was very pleased with Al's, found the perfect victim, moved in, and within hours killed Al. Um, he then took money from him, which was a tiny amount compared to what he could have taken. Bear in mind, he was torturing Al for hours. Al literally would have given him probably all of his money to make it end. Um, he then took out that money. He disposed of all the evidence um, and he left. I have a big question as to how when he drove the car back, parked it on that side street, no one saw him doing any of this stuff. No one saw him driving around with the ski mask on. How did he get then from Aurora to Denver to drop off those phones in the kind of poor part of the city knowing that homeless people would pick them up? So he's killed Al. He's gone to the bank. He's come back, destroyed evidence, taken the phones, Elle's phone and the other phone that he used, um, dropped them off in this five points area where they were picked up by homeless people, further confusing the situation. And then from there, in the heart of Denver, he's gone. Um, and in part two, we'll talk about theories because there are so many other cases that could potentially tie into this um, that are definitely need to be looked at um, and kind of will go into what I think because I've for about a year built up quite a lot of um, beliefs about this case and it's not very exciting, um, my understanding. Um, but yeah, we'll get into it then. So stay tuned for, you know, theories and other cases that are very similar. And I'll also go into what Paul Holes thinks and what his team has found and what very recent forensic genealogy testing has found as well. So until tomorrow, yeah.